we'll be reading in a few minutes. And, and while you're turning, I want to add my welcome to Chris's. Uh, I'm Matthew, one of the pastors here. And we've been preaching through the book of Ephesians. We've been in there for quite some time. We're going to be in Ephesians until uh, probably the end of August. And we're taking our time because the Apostle Paul packs a lot of truth into very short little sections of uh, Scripture. You know, he's kind of like, a, for those of you who are students, how your teachers are always trying to get you to use lots of good verbs and adjectives and fill your sentences with content. That's kind of what Paul's doing. So we move slowly, and we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3 today. Before I read that, by way of introduction, and I don't presume you all read uh, such things. I don't typically read such things as the Global Journal, but I noticed that they recently had a list of the top 500 non-governmental organizations in the world. If you're not familiar with that, usually people call them NGOs, non-governmental organizations, um, that typically do you know, non-profit work. That's usually what an NGO is up to. And the journal said that among the highest-ranked NGOs of 2015 are the UK organizations, Oxfam, Islamic Relief International, and Save the Children. The USA organizations, Acumen, Partners in Health, and World Vision, as well as organizations from Bangladesh, one called BRAC, uh, Denmark, the Danish Refugee Council, and the top-ranked MSF, Doctors Without Borders, some of you have probably heard of them, uh, from France. So top-ranked NGOs. Some of these NGOs are explicitly Christian organizations. Others make no such claim. And as a Christian, I'm really thankful for the humanitarian work that even a non-Christian organization does. I thank God for that. But at the same time, Kingsway, I'm, I'm jealous that we would never be known in our community or in the world as just another group of socially responsible people who are trying to make a positive difference. I'm jealous that, that we not be known as that. So is it good that we feed families in need through our food pantry every week? Yes. Yes, you're like, Matthew, you going to answer your own question like you typically do, or should I answer this? Yes, it's good, okay? You can answer this one too, all right? Is it good that we repair vehicles for church members who can't afford transportation to work because their car broke down? Yes, yes. Is it good that we host Easter egg hunts, teach at-risk students, or work in the foster care system? Yes, yes. And may you hear from this pulpit a strong desire and prayer that those practical acts of mercy and compassion would abound all the more in this church and through this church. I am jealous for that. But at the same time, friends, the church of Jesus Christ is not just another NGO. Because there's a mission God has explicitly given the church that he has not entrusted to a single other non-governmental organization. And it's a mission that places the church in an entirely different category. Okay, It's called the mission of the gospel. That's the mission. And so we shouldn't hesitate to engage in forms of ministry that, that non-Christians wholeheartedly support. 
But as we do that, brothers and sisters, we can never lose sight or lose focus on the one thing that makes us different than every other organization. Okay? The gospel was the focal point of Paul's ministry. And God says he wants it to be the focal point of our ministry. And in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul spends the first two chapters celebrating all these blessings that the gospel secures. That who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us, his life is death, his resurrection. There are blessings that all that has secured for us. That's chapters one and two. But then at the beginning of chapter three, Paul transitions from the blessings the gospel secures to the kind of ministry that the gospel enables. He transitions here. That's where we're at this morning. And Paul illustrates from his own life, a life that was dedicated to gospel ministry. And through his example, he challenges us to follow him. So let's read Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 7. What's gospel ministry look like? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Your gospel ministry may not look on the outside exactly like the Apostle Paul's. But you know what? The core DNA, the core structure of your gospel ministry, my gospel ministry, should look no different. No different. Don't write yourself out of the next 35 minutes because you think, I didn't get called to be Paul. Okay? The exterior might look different, but the core DNA, the structure of Paul's ministry, should be exactly what our ministry resembles. In essence, gospel ministry is this. This is how I define it. Gospel ministry is a stewardship God gives of a mystery God reveals through a power God provides. You want a definition of gospel ministry? It's a stewardship that God gives. Stewardship of what? Of a revelation, a mystery that God reveals. And all of that through a power God provides. So we're going to look at each one of those ideas, those truths in turn. And we're answering this question today. What is gospel ministry? What's gospel ministry? A stewardship God gives, a mystery God reveals through a power God provides. Okay, so let's start with point one. A stewardship God gives. I'm drawing this from verses one and two. So notice in verse two what Paul says happened to him. A stewardship of God's grace, quote, was given to me for you. 
Now, when we hear the word steward or stewardess, I don't know about you, but I think I like the nicely dressed people who give me pretzels and tell me to buckle my seatbelt when I don't want to buckle my seatbelt on a plane. Right. That, that's what comes to my mind when I think of steward or stewardess. But in the first century in Palestine, that's that wasn't the picture of a steward. OK, I'm not just being smart, like, well, they didn't have planes then. I know that. But a steward did this. OK, a steward was a household manager who handled the affairs of the estate on behalf of his master. That's what a steward was. If you were a steward, it meant that a really important person who had a lot of stuff had entrusted the care of those things to you. And so whether your master was present or absent, it was your job to advance your master's interest through the way you used your master's possessions. Okay, that meant that to be a steward was both an administrative role and a representative role. Your job was to do with your master's things exactly what your master would want to do with his things. And for that reason, in theory at least, he could trust you. So when Paul says that a stewardship of God's grace was given to him, he means that God entrusted him with something that was of great value to God. And charged Paul to use that gift to advance God's interest in the world. Are you following? So, so that begs the question, well, God, what did you entrust to Paul As your steward, he tells us, God's grace. God's grace, that's what God entrusted to me. What is God's grace? What is grace? It's a one-word summary of the entire gospel that Paul just finished writing about in Ephesians 1 and 2. Everything that God has done for us through Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, that's what Paul captures with the one word, grace. It's a summary of God's Salvation. Look at Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's the gospel that God entrusted to Paul. It's the good news of God's grace through Jesus that God gave to Paul as a gift and said, Paul, steward that. Steward that. And what being a steward of the gospel looks like, in case you're thinking, well, I can sort of imagine like stewarding some sheep or stewarding a farm, like stewarding the gospel. What does that look like? Well, look at verse 1. Paul tells us what it's like. What is stewardship? What is the stewardship that God gives look like in action? I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. To be a steward of the gospel means at least three things, all of them from that first verse. Okay, first, it means we embrace a call to suffer. Notice what Paul says. For this reason, I, Paul, a what? This is a real question. A what? A prisoner. Prisoner. Now, keep in mind when Paul says a prisoner, he's not, he's not kidding. Um, or speaking metaphorically. Like, well, you know, 
it was a big snowstorm and I kind of got stuck in my condo. No. <laughs> when Paul says he's a prisoner, he's writing Ephesians chained to a guard in a Roman jail over a thousand miles away from Ephesus. He really is a prisoner. And he's been imprisoned as simply the latest installment in a life that included things like this. Beaten, whipped, threatened, betrayed, deprived, exposed, stoned, shipwrecked. Oh, and at the end of the line, just to finish it off, let's throw you in prison. That's Paul. So why does being a steward of the gospel require suffering? Why would God require that of Paul? Why does God require that of us? Friends, it's very simple. But as Americans, we're slow to recognize this because we think that the point of life is to avoid every form of suffering. The reason is that we serve our master is a suffering savior. And in his perfect wisdom, God won our salvation through his suffering. And now, God is in the business of making his salvation known through your suffering. Okay, follow that. God won our salvation through his suffering. And now he's in the business of making his salvation known through our suffering, through your suffering. Because until we experience suffering, and you see this, it's really easy for the world to think of Jesus as some sort of optional icing on the cake of a comfortable life. You know, so you've got Jesus. You're kind of into the religious side of things. That's cool. I'm into sports to each his own. And, and, and it goes no further than that. Everyone has their own thing. But when you suffer, when, you're, when your car breaks down or you, you lose a big contract at work or your back pain won't go away or your girlfriend dumps you or your, or your kids refuse to obey you and you start fighting to trust God, and obey God, and, and you cling to his promises such that your joy, real joy, is actually increasing through your suffering, and dare I say your joy is increasing because of your suffering? Well, you know what happens then? Well, then the world looks at you and says, okay, either God is real or you're deluded. Because that response, that deep, abiding, growing joy and suffering makes no sense if God isn't real. How else can they explain the fact that you're singing at your daughter's funeral? Or that your gratitude grows while the muscles in your right arm are decaying? Or your words are filled with patience and gentleness toward that little person who just made a massive mess on a floor you just cleaned up. Okay, if you have deep, abiding, unshakable joy in Jesus and suffering, friend, you are proving to the world that God is real, God is good, and he is more satisfying than anything they can offer you. That's why being a steward of the gospel means embracing a call to suffer. Okay, that's the first thing. It's a stewardship God gives. What do you need to know about this stewardship? What's a call to suffer? Here's the second. It also means the stewardship God gives is a call to suffer for the sake of Christ. Okay, very important. Look back at verse 1. I, Paul, a prisoner 
for Christ Jesus. Let me say this very briefly. There is a difference between suffering and suffering for Christ Jesus. Those two things are not the same. And what sets apart the latter from the former is not so much the nature of our suffering or the cause of our suffering. It is our chosen goal in our suffering. That's the difference. A steward of the gospel knows that suffering brings with it this incredible opportunity to testify to the worth of Jesus and the power of God. And I'll remind you, you don't have to be in a Roman jail cell to do that. You really don't to suffer for Christ Jesus. You, you do that at home. You do that at work. You, you do it at school. You do it whenever you choose, friend, to respond to hardship in a way that holds forth the worth and value of God as greater than anything that just got taken away from you. You do that and you are suffering for Christ Jesus. That for means you are suffering in a way that elevates him and exalts him as more satisfying than anything you just lost. That's what it means to suffer for his sake. And lastly, the stewardship God gives Call to suffer, call to suffer for Christ's sake. It's a call to labor and work as we suffer for Christ's sake for the good of others. What's Paul say? I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. People God has called you to serve as a steward of the gospel might look very different than Paul. But the goal is the same. So I want you to Plug yourself into that picture. An engineer for Christ Jesus on behalf of my clients. A salesman for Christ Jesus on behalf of our customers. A high school sophomore for Christ Jesus on behalf of my fellow students. A mom for Christ Jesus on behalf of our kids. Okay, to be a steward of the gospel is to embrace whatever role God has called you to, friend. A role that will inevitably involve suffering and to fulfill it in such a way that God is glorified and all the people around you are edified. That's what it means to be a steward. But, but notice, please notice here that the primary good, the primary good God calls us to deliver to all the people around us is not paved roads, working websites, or clean homes. Okay, a steward of the gospel may be enabled to share all of those things. And those are good things, but those are not the primary gift. And quite frankly, they're not the primary gift because that's not the primary mission of the church. Because the primary mission of the church is what sets us apart from every other NGO on the face of the planet. Because we're not just stewards in general. We're stewards of the gospel. Which is why, as Paul goes on to say in verses 3 to 6, gospel ministry is a stewardship God gives of a mystery God reveals. Point two. Look at verses 3 to 6. Paul tells us that the gospel message God has entrusted to us as his stewards is at least five things. You're thinking, Matthew, you're crazy with numbers today. Keep us organized. 
Okay, but it's very simple. What's gospel ministry? It's a stewardship God gives. And that stewardship, that entrustment, is of a mystery God reveals. And we want to think very carefully with Paul about what is the mystery God's revealing that he's entrusted to us. Well, it's, it's at least five things. Okay, first, it's an inspired revelation. Inspired revelation. So Paul describes in verse 3 the stewardship of God's grace as a mystery that was made known to him by revelation. So follow this. What sets apart gospel ministry from every other form of humanitarian work is that it doesn't start with a recognition of human need. It starts with a revelation of the character of God. Okay? It addresses human need, but the foundation of the gospel, this message that God's entrusted to us as the church to steward, doesn't start with a recognition of human need. That's where every other NGO starts. It starts with a revelation of the character of God. It doesn't begin with something great that we want to do for people. It begins with a merciful Father opening our hearts and opening our minds so that we can understand the truth of the salvation that Jesus has won for us. So Matthew 11, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. We can't steward, friends, what we don't understand. And so the first thing about this mystery God reveals that he entrusts to us is that it's an inspired revelation. God must open his, our eyes through the gift of the Holy Spirit to understand it, to recognize what Jesus has done for us. Okay, it's an inspired revelation. Second, it's a verbal revelation. I want to linger on this for a couple minutes here. Notice how Paul describes the message of the gospel. Look at verse 3. As something that he has written briefly. That is really important. Something that's written briefly. That tells us that the stewardship God called Paul to and the stewardship God calls us to is fundamentally word-centered. It's a word-centered stewardship. God hasn't just entrusted to us some sort of notion or idea about himself. Or this kind of spiritual feeling that, you know, if we just kind of bring people into the church that will sort of rub off on them. He has entrusted to us a word, a written word. Which means that, that what God reveals to us and charges us to share is not primarily a friendly face. Though I hope you're friendly. <laughs> It's not primarily a hospitable home, though I hope you're hospitable. It's not free food, clean water, or educational advancement. It's a saving word, friends, a sure word, an an authoritative word, the word of the gospel that's been preserved for us on the pages of Scripture. That is what God has entrusted to us, a verbal revelation, and that means That when you share the gospel as a steward of the gospel, you're not just sharing another religious viewpoint or a spiritual perspective. If you're a student in school, don't get boxed into a conversation where you allow people to label you as, oh, well, that's just one more religious perspective. If you're a Christian, you're not sharing a religious perspective. You are sharing the very words of God. 
It's a verbal revelation. It's a, it's a written revelation. Allow that to embolden you when you feel weak. God's, God's put a word of power on your tongue. And the fact that the gospel ministry he's, he's entrusted to us is a, is a verbal revelation, a written revelation, means that stewarding the gospel requires speaking the gospel. We just want to make no assumptions here. Stewarding it requires speaking it. Okay, exercising your responsibility as a steward, if you're a Christian, means more, please hear this, than being a Christian presence or a Christian example. Let's ban from this church the terrible notion of sharing the gospel and, when necessary, using words. That is not biblical. Now, do you adorn the gospel? Do you reflect the gospel? Do you live out the gospel when you're silent, but your life is just an example of a transformed, sanctified person? You bet. But you're not a steward of the gospel, and you're certainly not a faithful steward of the gospel if you're not speaking it. It is words. It's a verbal revelation. You have to open your mouth and say something. You don't have to be in front of a pulpit like me, but you have to speak. And, and this is where I really want to challenge you. If you're a member of this church, okay, if this church is going to grow and endure in this community, newsflash, it's not going to be because we ran some great programs, we hired a few more pastors, Serena built us a new website, or we got a new sign up front. Or we got a new band leader. Or the sound system improved. How is this church going to grow? How are these seats going to be filled? It's going to be as you are faithful to speak about Jesus. And people hear you. And they're drawn to you. And they're drawn to you because God's drawn them to him. And they come with you to church. This church will never grow, friends, if we don't learn how to be increasingly faithful in sharing Jesus with people. That, that's not just something that, that I get paid to do on our collective behalf. That's our collective stewardship. That's our job, our holy responsibility. And one of my prayers is that God would make us a people who are known in this community as a church who can't shut up about Jesus. And I think for many of us, that requires repenting of where we have lacked compassion and falling on our knees and praying for a fear of God that drives the fear of man and what people think of us way far away. But if you're not speaking the gospel, if a year goes by, I mean, that's generous, right? And we haven't talked about Jesus with someone that doesn't know him. We're not being faithful stewards because it's a verbal revelation. We have to speak. Okay, third, it's a progressive revelation. It's progressive. It's inspired. It's verbal. It's it's progressive, this revelation God's given us. And this is where I'm picking up on this idea of mystery. It's a word that shows up a lot in here, mystery. Paul's, Paul's describing the message of the gospel as a mystery, not because it's inherently confusing, 
or that it's really hard to understand. A child can understand the gospel. He describes it as a mystery because prior to the coming of Christ, there was something about what God was doing that was hidden and hadn't been made known yet. So look at verse 6. What's the mystery, Paul? He just flat out tells us. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is that? Well, what was hidden in the Old Testament prior to the coming of Christ was not that God had a plan to save Gentiles. He could read in Isaiah chapter 2. God God had a plan to save Gentiles. What, What was hidden in the Old Testament prior to the coming of Christ was not that Gentiles would be blessed along with Israel. God had said that over and over again. What was hidden in the Old Testament but revealed after Christ was that Jews and Gentiles could be united as one body in Christ. Not separate, united. The mystery was that God would enable Jews and Gentiles to both cling to Christ so that they could become one in Christ. And that's an example of how God's revelation of the gospel, it it develops as you move from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. That's all Paul's saying. It's, It's progressive. The fact that something was hidden earlier that's now made known means that God's revelation is progressive. Over over time, he has been revealing his saving plan, culminating in the person and work of Christ. And that means that if you're going to be a faithful steward, you need to know the entire Bible. Not just John 3.16. Because this entire book progressively reveals God's saving plan. It's progressive. Fourth, it's self-authenticating. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that there's a word of comfort here, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. So if you're a Christian, here's what I mean by that. You can take heart that as you steward the gospel by speaking the gospel, there are going to be people that listen to you and experience in themselves exactly what happened to the Ephesians. Look at verse 4. What's Paul say? When you read this Ephesians, what happens? You can perceive my insight into the mystery. In other words, the fact that you're a steward of the gospel doesn't mean, friend, you're responsible for convincing people it's true. That's not your responsibility. That's God's job. That's the job of his word. Those that God has called to the gospel, as they listen to you and me, they will respond to the gospel If God is drawing them and proving, authenticating himself. That's why I say it's self-authenticating as they read God's word. That this is actually truth in life. That's the hope if you're a Christian. It's self-authenticating. You don't have to authenticate the word in order to speak it profitably. It does that itself. And if you're a non-Christian and you're listening, let me simply say this. If you find yourself struggling, is it true? Is it not true? Is it true? Is it not true? How do I know this is true? I mean, what about Dan Brown? You know, what do we do with this? <laughs> read it. Just read it. If you are struggling whether or not to know whether or not the Bible is true, the single best thing you can do is actually read the Bible. Because there's a place for apologetics. There's a place for historical studies. Grateful for that. That can help us overcome different intellectual obstacles. 
But this word, because it's God's word, as you read it, it testifies to our hearts, to our spirits, that it's true. It's self-authenticating. Okay, it's, it's verbal. It's a revelation. It's self-authenticating. It's progressive. And then, then here's the last characteristic of this revelation God's given us. Look back at verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of what? Of Christ. Of Christ. So fifth, it's a Christ-centered revelation. Okay, remember, brothers and sisters, please remember, if you're a Christian, that of all the things that God reveals to us in his word, and of all the things that you can share with somebody else who doesn't know Jesus through his word, The single most important thing is Jesus. Always. In every situation. And I can't tell you how easy it is to get drawn into conversations about God or religion or the Bible. That a hop, skip and a jump and Jesus is nowhere in the conversation. The best thing you can do is remember that this word that God's entrusted to us as his stewards is a Christ Centered revelation. So, to be very practical, does the Bible have something to say in a conversation about human sexuality? Yes. Yes. You bet it does. How about in a conversation about parenting, politics, music, or entertainment? Does the Bible have something to say? Yes, it does. But we have to remember that the message God has entrusted to us as his stewards is not first and foremost a message about how to parent your kids or how to vote in November or how to set up a content filter or how to act in your bedroom. Okay, the message God's entrusted to us is first and foremost a message about Jesus. Now, the gospel, please hear this, has things to say about all those areas of life. But let's not flip the order of priority. We start with Christ. Because he's the center of God's revelation. He's the one to whom it points. So gospel ministry is a stewardship God gives. Of a revelation God reveals. We've looked at that. And here's the last point. Through a power God provides. What is gospel ministry? What is it that sets the church and Christians in the church apart from every other humanitarian organization? What's the fact that we've been called to gospel ministry? What's that? What's a stewardship God gives of a mystery God reveals through a power God provides? So look at verse 7. We'll end with this. Paul says of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me. This is So encouraging. By the working of his power. Through a power God provides. For me, and I don't presume this is true for all of us, but at least for me, running is a pastime and a way to stay in shape. Um, I love to run. Does anybody else in here really enjoy running? A couple people. Wow. Yeah, usually it's like, you what? Yeah, I actually enjoy it. Well, let me tell you something. I will run in all kinds of weather. 
And part of the reason I'll do that is that I hate running on a treadmill. I hate it. I can't stand it. And the reason I can't stand it is that you can be busting your butt, you know, nine miles an hour, ten miles an hour, clipping six-minute miles. And you haven't gone anywhere. <laughs> You're still looking at this same bike in front of you and the same cinder block walls and the same TV screen and you're killing yourself and you're not getting anywhere. It just feels like a one endless exercise in futility. That's why I can't run on treadmills. Well, if you can relate to that, working hard yet going nowhere, friend, I want to warn you, that's a pretty good picture of what gospel ministry is like apart from the power of God. Working hard, get nowhere. And the scary truth is that it's all too easy to be engaged in the right ministry, whether at work, at home, at school, but to see little or no progress because you're trying to do it on your own strength. I told a close friend recently that I think one of the most important things that God's done in my life over the last year is he's taught me to depend on him. And I'm not talking about, about some sort of you know, mental acknowledgement. You know, check box. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Okay, I get it. No, I'm, I'm talking about an hour by hour, day by day conviction But Lord, if you don't come through for me right now, I am sunk. That's sanity. You know, going from preaching once a month to preaching almost every week will force you to learn that. Going from serving on a pastoral team with five full-time people to being the only full-time person will force you to learn that. And at first, my experience, it's profoundly uncomfortable. My wife is smiling at me right now because she's thinking, that's an understatement. (laughs) But this has been my experience. Week by week and month by month, the Lord has shown me, in the words of Harold Honer, That God does not give responsibility without the provision of power to carry it out. He just doesn't do that. We serve a God who never gives responsibility without the provision of power to carry it out. And I praise God for that. I praise God for that because both the stewardship of the gift and the ability to exercise it are all a gift of God's grace. It wasn't Paul's power that made him a faithful steward. And it's not, newsflash, your power that's going to make you a faithful steward. It's the power of God in you, working in you, just like it was in Paul. Equipping you, enabling you to be a faithful steward. Gospel ministry is a stewardship God gives 
of a revelation, a mystery that God reveals through a power God provides. If you're following, there's a common word in every point. What is it? God. What is gospel ministry? A a stewardship God gives of a mystery God reveals through a power God provides. Translation, our ministry and what sets us apart from every other NGO on the face of the planet is radically God-centered. Which means at the end of the day, the God who enabled Paul to be a faithful steward and is going to enable us to be faithful stewards gets every single bit of the glory. Every bit. Every bit. Friend, remember that this week. No matter what you would put into verse 1, a mom for Christ Jesus on behalf of my kids, an engineer for Christ Jesus on behalf of my clients, construction worker for Christ Jesus on behalf of my boss that I can't stand sometimes. Whatever you would put in there, whatever your stewardship looks like, remember that it comes with power from God to fulfill it. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you have entrusted to us as Christians, as the church, what is of inestimable value to you. The message of the gospel. And Lord, I pray today that we would receive that stewardship with humility. We would embrace it with gratitude. And we would fill it with confidence. We need your help to do that. And we thank you now for the gift of the Lord's Supper that enables us to remember and rejoice that there is a mighty power that raised Christ from the dead alive and at work in us. Amen.